Hi, I'm Dr. Judy and welcome to Supercharged Life where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness and fulfillment and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today, I wanna to talk about the superpower of fighting injustice. We only have a brief time on this earth to make a difference. And I believe it is a moral, ethical, and social responsibility for each and every one of us to try and leave this world a little better than it was when we came into it. I hope this episode stirs you up and motivates you to be a daily superhero. It doesn't matter how old you are, what your ethnic background, your religious beliefs, gender identity or sexual orientation, income or education level. The bottom line is you can do a lot more than you think. And we will arm you with the tools to feel powerful to create change. I'm so humbled to be in the presence of two great men who are wise, thoughtful, and willing to dialogue around difficult topics, even with people who don't share their viewpoints. They're using their powerful platforms to set great examples for others and to inspire positive progress. And before we start, I just want to say the three of us, we have different ethnic backgrounds. We have different experiences. And we're coming together to show how we can still have a good discussion. And it doesn't mean that we agree. We may even say things that might minorly insinuate the other person, or maybe we'll make mistakes, but that's okay. I just want us to set a good example for how respectful discourse can take place between people who have very different experiences growing up and maybe not understanding everything, but willing to learn. So first, my first guest is writer and filmmaker, Ray Marcus Green. He wrote and directed a deeply reflective and award-winning film, Monsters and Men, about the reactions to police brutality and murder of a Black man through the eyes of three distinct characters, each with their own histories and generational traumas. With his unique approach, Ray hopes to provoke thoughtful discussion and spark change. So welcome, Ray. It's so wonderful to have you. Oh, thank you. It's an honor, really. Thank you. And also joining us is a good friend of mine, Father Tom Gibbons, who is a Catholic priest with the Paulist Fathers in Los Angeles and vice president of Paulist Productions. And his production company works to create thought-provoking films that explore the human condition, including Isaac Hecker and the Journey of Catholic America and The Dating Project. So hello, Father Tom. Thanks again for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, there's so much to talk about. And it can be sort of difficult to find the words, especially given the type of climate we've been in. So we've really got two pandemics going on right now. We've got COVID-19 and we've got racism. And one has been around much longer than the other. And most of us have been at home under shelter in place orders because of COVID. There's obviously a lot of stress, a lot of distrust, I think, of the government that has been broiling underneath. And this news about the coronavirus has been 24-7 for the last two and a half, three months. But two weeks ago, everything changed. And it was just the latest in a long string of police brutality against African-Americans. And this time, it was the murder of George Floyd. I want to start with you, Ray. I mean, we can speak the names of so many people who have been affected in this way. Police brutality, unfair practices, discrimination. But why do you believe the George Floyd video became the tipping point for people? I think George, uh, as you said, I think is coupled with a lot of things that are happening. It's not just George, it's Breonna Taylor, it's uh, Ahmaud Arbery, which, you know, so there, there's a couple of things that happen on top of the pandemic, which has been sort of the, the boiling point for a lot of people. What you have is is a, a lot of people that are out of work, that are a lot of people, but, but a lot of people that are actually home and had time 
to finally sit with these things in a way that they haven't before. When you're working 12, 15 hour shifts and you really want to go to that protest, but you know what, I, I, I got to work in the morning or I have to, I have to get up. You have far less participation because the demands on you are different. And now the demands are I'm home. So I have to give, I don't have any excuse but to respond to what's happening. And so I think it's it's a combination of things that are happening and that you're seeing. And 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 you know, it's not just George Floyd. George Floyd, it's also the woman in Central Park. You know, when I see all the videos, you know, that's the one in some ways that infuriates me the most. And it's not the least violent. And it's because it has this subtext of, of, of power and, and, and dominance. And, and, and that's, that's at the heart of all these videos that we see. And it's, it's all of that combined into one thing. And again, what you have are people with time on their hands. You have people that are, they've been asked to get out of the house because it's safer than staying inside. And we're having a call to response that, you know, greater than we've ever had before. Um, you know, look, I mean, the videos have been horrific. We don't need to talk about it. We've all seen it or seen clips and people that even haven't seen them have seen them because they, right. they know what has happened. They've heard eight minutes and 43 seconds. And, and I think that has had such a resonant, what do you mean eight minutes? You know, like, yeah. you know, at times it has felt in this country that people have become desensitized to these things. And I think what you're feeling now is a little bit of a waking of a sleeping giant. It's, it's feeling like, people are responding to something in a, in a different way than we have seen it before. And again, it's not to say that people have not, we've been protesting for a very, 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 very long time. Um, but I think as, as Obama has alluded to that, this is different. This is different than the sixties. This is different than anything we've seen before. And I think a lot has to do with, um, you know, people are home and have time to finally engage in a way that they have. Ray, I completely hear you because when I watched the video with Amy Cooper, in New York. I was really struck by it too, because it was filmed by Christian Cooper, no relation. He was the African-American who she threatened to call the police on. But just by her words, the fact that she said something to the tune of, I'm going to call the police and tell them that an African-American man was threatening me. And meanwhile, when you look at her and the way she was gesturing the video, she was the one who was actually threatening him, right? But just in her saying that phrase, it shows that she understood the subtext. She understood the generation's long history of the systemic injustice that an African-American man should be afraid of the police. And she was basically, in essence, in many ways, threatening his life. And it was all over her not having her dog on a leash and him just saying, hey, can you please do that? This is a protected part of the park. There's a lot of plants. There's a lot of wildlife. You know, we need to have your dog on a leash. And that was really just the rules. And, and this just kind of boiled over into this huge thing. And Ray, both you and Father Tom actually are from New York, New Jersey, which is super cool. Which part of Jersey? Uh, I grew up in Northwestern New Jersey, but I, uh, my, my, um, my parents grew up in Bay Ridge, uh, Brooklyn, so. <laughs> I know Bay Ridge very well. <laughs> yep. And, you know, for those of you guys, obviously you're listening to a podcast, so you can't see us, but, you know, Ray is African-American. Father Tom is 100% Irish. That's what he told me yesterday. <laughs> Four and, generations back, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> half Puerto Rican, half African-American. So. Half nice. Puerto okay, Rican yep. as well. 
And I'm, I'm a hundred percent. Well, I'm 98% Chinese. Apparently I'm 2% Finnish who knew, but you know, wow. <laughs> um, so obviously we come from different ethnic backgrounds. We come from different upbringings. We have some commonalities too. One of the things that we all have is a public facing platform. And we are fortunate in that way that we get to actually talk about and speak about the things that we really care about and, and really try to, you know, encourage discussion among people about trying to understand what's going on. So Father Tom, I, I was struck by just, you know, your own uh, recollection of your childhood that when you grew up, you actually didn't come into as much contact with the African-American community until a little later. Yeah, that's right. I uh, was born in 1972. And I think what uh, a lot of my neighborhood in Northwestern New Jersey, uh, I was, I think it was a neighborhood very much populated by the Irish and Italian uh, people who grew up in New York and then moved out to the suburbs, like when they started to settle down and have families. And uh, I think diversity was just something we heard about, but we really didn't necessarily experience. Like, I think uh, the vast majority of the town I grew up with uh, was Catholic. Um, you know, we had Jewish neighbors across the street, but, you know, there was, I think we all kind of had that common experience. So I think um, what, you know, we would hear about issues of racism and, 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 and talk about them, but we all had that context of within the vast majority of us being white. And so, uh, I think it wasn't until I went to college in Baltimore, Maryland in 1990, that I think diversity just became a more part of my regular life. And I, I don't mean that like in a, like I joined the cause or anything like that, but just, you know, oh, wow, I, I you know, Baltimore is, is, is more of a primarily African-American city um, with, with a lot of different ethnicities involved. And of course, I think that was really my first um, interpersonal introduction, you know, to, to other communities, basically. I think it's interesting when we talk about sort of when we were exposed to other groups, you know, and, and how we understood their experiences against our own. And this idea of systemic racism, I think sometimes people, I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes of what that means. You know, sometimes people think, well, I'm not a racist person or I don't do racist things. And yet systemic racism is something that is much bigger. It's not just America. We see it a lot in America. We're all Americans. So we we're seeing it here, but it happens everywhere. It really takes a toll because it pervades so many different systems from a wealth gap to employment, to housing discrimination, government surveillance, incarceration, drug arrests, immigration arrests, infant mortality. I mean, we can talk all day about how these gaps exist. But Father Tom, when was it that you understood that there was a systemic injustice, especially with regards to police systems and treatment of the African-American community? I think it was kind of like a slow evolvement in terms of my understanding on that. When I came to college, one of the grateful things I am for my college background, I went to Loyola University of Maryland. One of the, the great things there is they had this great Department of Service and Justice, in which we were not only asked to worship and participate in our faith on Sundays, which is great, and we should do that, but what are we doing with our faith the other six days of the week? And how do we be exposed to communities? And I just started getting more involved with uh, homeless issues and started getting more 
uh, which took me to different areas of the city than the really nice neighborhood that Loyola was located in. And I think it was just having that start a gradual conversation and being exposed to professors who would bring up these topics and who would bring that up and engage that with us and give us, you know, new perspectives that we might not have been exposed to before, but also kind of give us the, the freedom to wrestle with, you know, some of our own previous understandings of how the world worked, you know, and I, I think that just my time in Baltimore and then uh, doing some service work in Phoenix, Arizona, and then moving back to Baltimore and working for Head Start, you know, it's just having the African American community become more a part of my own community. That's when a lot of these things, uh, I, and I, I won't even say, oh, I, I know it all. I, I'm, I'm still learning everything new, you know, things new every day of things I had blind spots for. I think that is maybe one aspect of privilege that isn't talked about a lot, but this understanding that privilege sometimes affords blind spots. They're kind of invisible hands that are supporting people who are privileged. And sometimes you don't acknowledge them, but it nevertheless is happening. Ray, another thing that actually all three of us have in common is that we're all educators. We've all had a history of being educators. And it's amazing because obviously a lot of this is an educational moment, but it's also a heartbreaking moment. And Ray, your film, first of all, I just really, really loved watching it for a lot of different reasons. I thought it was thought-provoking because it was about the perspectives of three very different individuals. There was the person who filmed the murder of an African-American. There was an African-American police officer who himself was experiencing being pulled over all the time by, I guess, what would be his colleagues, um, even though he was serving on the police force and him having somewhat mixed feelings about the public reaction. And then, of course, the last character who I loved was just this really young individual with a bright future, possibly. You know, he might have gotten a baseball scholarship to go to college and making these decisions. Should I stand up? Should I protest? And having this father who basically kind of seemed broken down by the system, like, can you just keep quiet and let's just have you be seen by the scouts and you go to college and break the cycle? but maybe not go to the protest and don't make a statement because I don't want you to get arrested or something horrible happened to you. So I just want to know what your thoughts were when you were putting this film together and what were you hoping people would get from that? Yeah, I think at the time I was questioning myself, what am I doing? Am I doing enough as an individual to talk about these issues or, you know, and of course, you know, I was on, at the time I was on social media and, I felt like whether I was, you know, sharing an article or retweeting, you know, is that enough? Is that enough? You know, I'm not, I'm not changing policy. I'm not, you know, like what, what can I do? And, and of course, you know, as a filmmaker, I thought I could, I could make a film. The film itself could be, you know, my form of protest. I can talk about issues and questions that I have or problems that I have, or, you know, am I doing enough? And, and quite frankly, I wasn't, you know, and it's not that I didn't want to, it's not that my intentions weren't good. It's, it wasn't enough to tweet. It wasn't enough to retweet. It wasn't enough to say I had done enough because I don't think I did. And, and that's why I thought, okay, if I make a film about it, at least I, I can take one step towards talking about these issues because that's my platform. I mean, had I had millions of followers, maybe a tweet would have made a difference. I only had, you know, a couple hundred. So 
I was living a little bit in a social media vacuum and realized that I needed to, to branch out and, 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 and use my platform to at least ask the questions. I, don't, I, I still don't have the answers. And I hope that my film provokes people enough to ask themselves the question, you know, am I so close-minded that I can't speak to, you know, the other side? You know, oftentimes what we do and what I felt when I was on social media is that if it was a difference of opinion, you can mute that person, you know, not see them show up in your feed. And then you can just surround yourself around like-minded people, which, yeah, maybe that makes for a more comfortable place to live, but it's not a true representative of like how we actually interact. You know, if you go outside, you know, you're constantly interacting with lots of people. You don't get to minimize your feed in that, in that way. So it's, you, you know, we create bubbles around ourselves so much so we didn't realize that we could elect a certain type of president. It creates bubbles sometimes. And to get back to the fundamental question, the film was my protest. The film was a way for me to ask the questions that I couldn't answer myself and pose questions that help people move one step further towards action. Because I think that's the biggest thing. It's like, okay, it's one thing to know that the problems exist. It's one thing to know. And that's part of the reason why I left my film a little bit more open-ended. You know, some people call that art house or less commercial. <laughs> I, I call it... The European ending. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was a little bit more European in its, in its construct. But I thought if I answered it, if I solved the problem in my movie, and look, maybe this is just the artist in me, right? Part of, This is my process. If I solved the problem, I just felt like I was doing it. I was doing an injustice to this particular story. I wouldn't say that of all movies. Yeah, I think all movies should have a beginning, middle, and end. And yeah, you should feel good when you leave the movie or, or feel inspired to do something. And I, my hope was that folks would feel at least inspired to find out what happened to Manny. What happens to people like Manny who post a video? There's been so many people that have posted videos in the past that we don't hear about anymore that we don't know what happened to them, that have been run out of their town, out of their homes, that have been arrested on ancillary charges that happened to them afterwards. So I think there's a lot of people like Manny in my movie that have suffered for releasing these videos. Thank God we're, you know, a few years later where videos have become far more common, you're seeing less retaliation, but it's not completely finished. You have Gentlemen like Ramsey Orta, who's still sitting in prison, in a Vegas prison. He was the gentleman that filmed the Eric Garner case. And a lot of people don't remember Ramsey Orta. They know about Eric Garner, but they don't know what happened to the people that actually videotaped these things. The gentleman that videotaped the Walter Scott incident in South Carolina, who was running away from the police officer, got shot in the back. He said he didn't want to come forward with that video because he felt he, he knew what happened to the gentleman that happened in Staten Island. And without that video, that police officer's story would literally he would have gotten off. And we all know that narrative. And so I guess I just wanted the the the, the stories that I was telling or the, the characters that we focused on for us to try to put ourselves in their shoes for just a short amount of time and say, look, it's not easy. These are not easy questions. We're not saying it's easy. It's not black and white. It's gray. And how do we play in this gray area? you know, that we find ourselves in. And I think that's still a lot of questions that we're asking ourselves now. I'm sure I have a lot of friends that are reaching out to me and saying, right, well, I just, 
I really want to help. I want to do something. I, I just don't know what to do. Yes. And and I think there's just, you know, and I'm sure father, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I think there's a fair amount of just folks that are tone deaf, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It's not that the intentions are not good. It's literally like, I, I don't, you know, I can't hear music. You know, I, I don't understand how that works. You know, some people can see right. colors, but others can't. And, and right. it's literally, and I, and I find that there's a fair amount of people with great intentions that are truly tone deaf. And, yeah. you know, they'll post videos and they think that they're doing good and, and, and it backfires. Yeah. And when those things backfire, I feel like a lot of people were like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that either. Maybe mm-hmm. silence is better because I don't want that to happen to me. And so you get a lot of folks that have been punished for trying to do something good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. But because they're tone deaf, have been punished for it publicly. Yes. And they yeah. have silence. And it's, it's a huge problem. And I don't think we're talking about it enough. And I think, you know, it's not like a message to my white friends or something, because mm-hmm. I don't think that's what it should be. You know, I just think, yeah. I think you can talk about this because you experience this all the time, right? It's like being a good neighbor. I liken it to mm-hmm. like, if I were, if I were driving and I saw, you know, uh, an old man or an old woman with their, with their grocery bag going to their car, I, I might stop and help, but I wouldn't stop take a picture of myself, hashtag it, put it online. Like that wouldn't be the natural thing to do. The natural thing to do would be like, how do I, how do I just get this person in their car and get them on their way? It's kind of the world we're living in. And like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with the selfie. There's nothing wrong with the protest to say that I was here, but that can't be the reason to go to the protest. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. A reason to go to the protest is not the hashtag. Right. Exactly. The intention. And so I don't know. I don't, I don't, maybe you guys have some thoughts on, on that, on, on that issue of being tone deaf, but I, I feel like that's kind of where I, I feel a lot of people are. I mean, I think my perspective on it is I think, you know, just when like I'm, I'm Gen X. So I'm like, I feel like the, the baby boomers, had there, and not that it's over, of course, but, you know, speaking, you know, not that we should be engaging in stereotypes, but I'll just stereotype anyway, <laughs> you know, it's, um, or just maybe like movements. It's like the baby boomers, like they kind of like processed um, their uh, racial struggles one particular way. And I think like for younger generations, I think one of the things I really appreciated about Monsters and Men was your willingness to go into the gray. You know, because I mean, we can we can say don't be racist 24 seven. And I think so much of our public discourse on our racial relationships, one another on our racial biases has always been kind of binary. It's like it's either, you know, you say something good and you're Cornell West and you say something bad and you're David Duke. And I think one, you know, when Dr. Judy, you're asking me. What about my experiences? I think one of the greatest um, seminars I went to when I was in college was this person who talked to us. Uh, we just had very an open discussion about just our you know relations with races, and just the main theme of that was, hey, you know, we all have struggles with this issue. Like because we're so used to talking about you're either a racist or you're not, or that's a racist thing and that's not. It's like. I I don't know if it's that simple. Like I have to come to terms with, you know, I grew up in a very, very white place, um, not exposed to a lot of diversity. Do I have a little bit of racism? 
yeah, a little bit. Am I a racist? No. But have I, you know, are those parts of myself that I have to deal with as RFK, as I like to think that I am? Uh, yeah, I do. And I think that's true of almost all of us. Part, part of my quote unquote business is the fact that we're all broken human beings and we're all not perfect. And I think racism is a way in which we're all not perfect. And yet what I get frustrated about is people unwilling to admit their own limitations in a particular era and just how many of the voices out there it's just like i know what i'm talking about this is the way it is and this is the way it is and i'm like i've had way more experiences than you in this situation whoever the person is i'm talking about and if i don't know what i'm talking about then you definitely don't know what you're talking about you know so i think it's it's if I, my one wish for this conversation uh this larger conversation is for us all to enter into this conversation with a degree of humility. The more we enter into that spirit with general humility, then maybe we will be able to forgive one another. When I say the wrong thing, but if I have enough humility, I've built up enough, enough trust to know that it's like there's a spirit of forgiveness that can happen with that. Correction, to be sure, but also uh, how, you know, it's, we're all going to mess up in having this conversation. It's like having a conversation with, you know, people with whom we disagree on anything or just even people we love. We all have disagreements and how can we build up that trust? And I think humility is one of the best ways to do that. And not cut it off when things get uncomfortable. Um, right. I just had an, uh, an experience about this with one of my friends yesterday who was white and we were having this conversation and I thought we were having a good dialogue, um, just, you know, with our different perspectives, but I guess I hit a note at some point and she basically said, well, what do I know? I'm white. So don't listen to me. And that wasn't my intent. I wasn't trying to shut mm -hmm. her down. I was just expressing something that I felt and experienced differently as a Chinese American woman about what's going on right now with the protests and police brutality and systemic injustice. And it was maybe only a few minutes into this conversation. And when you say something like, well, what do I know? I'm white anyway. Forget it. You're closing the door mm. for a further conversation as opposed to saying, well, explain that to me. Why do you feel that way? Because I, I don't see it that way. And if, if sorry if I'm being insulting, but I, I just don't know, right? Um, it, it would have it been great because then we could have continued. And, and I tried to re-engage her and I said, well, don't shut down. Like, let's, let's keep talking. Um, but right. I could tell she got very uncomfortable. And I think sometimes this idea of not knowing enough, which both of you guys spoke to, um, this idea of um, maybe even white guilt, the guilt of being part of a system that maybe you didn't create, but you are benefiting from. Um, and then just this idea of because of that, maybe we want to go into places that are comfortable for us, mm -hmm. people we're used to associating with, people who probably have the same opinions as us. But that really impedes progress. We all know about groupthink and how that works. And segregation can sometimes happen not because you're actually thinking you're actively being discriminatory. It's just born out of a desire to be with people who are a little bit more like you. Mm -hmm. And segregation can all of a sudden occur in a very widespread level. So, Ray, what do you think we should be doing um, to encourage people to network to to sit with that discomfort because i know what you're talking about especially with your film it's this idea of 
provoking enough discomfort to some degree that then you want to talk about it more, that you want to learn about it more, that you want to say, I want to run out and talk to somebody about this. And I, I think that your film achieved that because it is discomforting to not have outcomes for these characters that maybe you wish you could tie it up into a little bow and you can't, but that's yeah. reality. And that's what's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, to, to that, you know, I did shoot the sort of crash version of my film, you know, we have it on the art drive and maybe, you know, maybe another distributor would have appreciated it more, you know, but, but again, you know, I have my police officer, you know, come into contact with uh, the young boy and, they have a face-off with the gun. And I wrote it. I wrote it. I shot it. It's there. Something just felt contrived about it. And and I think, look, I mean, it's hard to say, right? It's an individual thing. I think we all have our own biases. I shut down sometimes when I don't want to hear things that, you know, like cross my line. So everybody has different lines that we don't want to cross. I think, look, I think we, we, we just need to get beyond ourselves. A lot of it comes with maturity. And, and that's not necessarily an age thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, it's just a maturity level of when you're ready to have those conversations and and who you're willing to have the conversations with. I grew up around a lot of cops, so there was already a certain amount of level of comfort with me communicating with law enforcement because they were Mm. my friends. They were kids that I grew up. So it wasn't like I had to figure out what it was like to talk to a cop. It was, it was, they, they were people that I knew all the time and, and people that I engaged with all the time. It was like, I had a, I have a, I have a bunch of buddies that are the cops. Yeah. And I, I know, you know, this father growing up in Staten Island, it's, it's a lot of cops. It's a lot of mm-hmm. firemen. It's a lot yep. of construction workers. And, and look, these are the people that I played high school baseball with, played high school football with at the time they were just kids and then they became law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So I knew them when they were just pimple faced kids like myself. <laughs> <laughs> so we could bust each other. We, we had a certain level of respect for having bled the same sweat and tears on the football field. And then, but again, I feel like that's what happened. We played on a team and there was a certain set of rules on that team. You know, that was football, right? You die for whoever's in front of you. And that's all that matters. But then when I wear the, the blue, you know, as I'll call it, that's a different set of rules. Mm-hmm. And even with my best intention, sometimes it's, you know, look, they're my teammates. What do I yeah. do when one of my teammates does something? Look, I have tons of teammates that really not so great things. Did we punish that? I, you know, it's, it's always a fine, it's a tricky line with law enforcement because now it's, it's your job. And it's, it's a very tricky situation. It's not to condone anything that we've seen on any of these tapes. It's not to condone any of the behavior. But a lot of times, as you said, it becomes this conversation of what team do you play for? Are you on the Mets or are you on the Yankees? Right. But we're talking about human life. We cannot reduce human life to a sport or an us versus them. And I think that's what what you see a lot of times are these black and white things, and it's impossible to have these conversations. So I think to to your question a little bit, it's how do you have these conversations, right? It's like you have to build a conference. It's like building a relationship with anybody. You have to want to build a relationship with a priest. You have to want, and vice versa. It, it, It goes both ways. It takes people on our side and people on their side to say, look, we got to come together. We have to put our differences aside, Republican or Democrat, to move forward. Otherwise, it's just a stalemate and we, and we go backwards. 
And I think that's it's it's the conversations we're constantly having, right? I think it takes true leadership and leadership at the local level, leadership at the presidential level, like all that mm-hmm. leadership on a team, leadership mm-hmm. in the community, leadership within a relationship. It always takes someone or a mediator. People have to have to have to want to have those conversations. People have to want to move past. And look, maybe maybe your friend, it's not that she doesn't want to have the conversation with you. Maybe she felt backed against the wall, even if you weren't putting her there, right? That's how she mm-hmm. felt. You're like, I don't understand. I just asked the question. And like it should not have made her feel that. But somehow her brain went there. And it's like, yes. Well, how do you penetrate that level of resistance, right? And and maybe it's just not today. Yeah. yeah. So I just I think it's it's always about who the voice is, who you can who you can get the message across. So to me in the film, it was like, all right, don't listen to me. Listen to you know, like however I need to, you know, I have an opinion, of course. You know, I'm trying yes. to get my, my way heard, but I I need folks to listen. I need folks to engage. And who are the who are the people that are willing? And that's always hard. It's hard to find the audience, right? I think yes. Obama is a great example of someone that has found an audience. Why? Yes. He speaks coherently. He's articulate. Mm-hmm. He's, mm-hmm. He feels grounded. He feels human. It's not just that he's a really smart guy. There's really smart people that can't do the same thing. And, and, yeah. and you could probably say that about a lot of leaders. You know, it goes beyond their one skill set. And I think, right. you know, I think that's, it's finding those people that can, you know, that can help lead our voices. You have a podcast, you have a following, you're using your platform for good to tell these stories, for bringing people on to ask those difficult questions. And it's only going to continue to grow because I think people respond to you. They respond to your questioning. They respond to what it is that you're doing and the intention behind it. It's not about the hashtag, although we will all hashtag after this. <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. I, I think that's really that's really it. Is, is is every individual using their voice the best they can to try to have these you know these conversations? I so appreciate you saying that it it is about the intention, even if the execution is not perfect. I mean, we've said this a few times in our conversation so far. Yeah, we're going to make mistakes. I probably did insult my friend somehow without knowing, but I did, and I caused it to shut down. I thought about it a lot after. I said, you know, did I did I come on too strong? Did I say something in a way that sounded a bit too, uh, you know, preachy or something, you know, no offense, father, but you know, I wasn't <laughs> sure if I, I maybe I was, I, I was gutting on my soapbox too much. I, I don't know, you know, but, but I think what we're talking about is this is highly personal for everyone. This conversation about race, about privilege, everyone does have an opinion about it. And sometimes mm-hmm. people don't want to look at the brokenness. They don't want to mm-hmm. look at their flaws. They don't want to ask themselves, maybe I should have done something more. Why haven't I? Mm-hmm. Does that mean something about me as a human being? Because 99.9% of human beings would like to think of themselves as good, ethical, Mm -hmm. moral people. So I think that that's inherent in this whole discussion. And yet, um, to the point of even children sometimes being mediators, children being so Mm -hmm. innocent, you know, when do children learn about this injustice? When do they learn about Mm -hmm. racism? And, you know, in psychology, we've done many studies about this. And I don't know if you guys have heard of the doll test. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Um, It's heartbreaking to see it over and over again. You know, this 
the dolls test was something that originated decades ago, but they keep doing the study over and over because people say, well, maybe it doesn't apply anymore. We've come a long way. Uh, it's 2020. Is this still happening? And of course, every few years they repeat the study. And the premise of the study is they take children who are between the ages of three to seven years old, and they've expanded it to all different types of ethnic backgrounds. But it, originally it was white and African-American children. And they have two identical dolls and one doll is a white doll and the other doll is a black doll. But otherwise they completely look the same, same hair, same eyes, features, everything. And they asked these three to seven year olds, which one's the pretty doll? Which one's the ugly doll? Which one's the stupid doll? Which one's the bad doll? And what was so heartbreaking is that you see over and over again that generally 75% of African-American children will say, yeah, the black doll is a bad, dumb, ugly one. And then they ask this final question, which doll looks more like you? And they identify with the black doll. So those messages are starting at such an early time and they continue across your lifetime because in adults, they do this implicit association test where they ask adults, well, okay, what do you do for a living? And there's so many people there who say, you know, well, actually I fight for social justice. This is actually my job. And yet, you know, white or black, they all have these, what we call implicit or unconscious biases that causes them to react in such a way to the study where they just more closely associate negative descriptions with African-American faces. So knowing that, I would just love for both of you guys to reflect on, you know, what can we do? Because to the point of we all can do something, it starts somewhere. Leadership can start in the home, in a partnership with your children. How do we move forward knowing that this is not something people learn when they get to college? You know, this is not something they learn when they're in their 30s or 40s. It's it's happening at such an early age when you believe children might even be close to blank slates. You know, what mm. what is happening here and how can we change that? You know, maybe, maybe this is something I'm supposed to say, but I really do believe it's true. I think when we're dealing with these kinds of forces like like racism and bias, in many ways, we are just as individual human beings and even as a society, we're dealing with forces that are larger than each of us individually. And so I, I, I really just been encouraging people and myself, pray, 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 pray. There's a priest that I know, Father Clarence Williams, who wrote a book, I think it was about 15 years ago, where he talks about racial sobriety. And he talks about how we view racism in terms of like how we view being sober from like alcohol or drugs, or if someone has another kind of addiction. And, and, you know, any kind of 12 step program is just realizing the first step is, you know, there is something that's outside my control. And I think that's a lot of what, um, you know, your friend encountered yesterday. And that's how I think a lot of people feel. It's just like, whenever we see like the really steep hill, it's just easier to throw up our arms and say, mm -hmm. well, I can't climb that. And, mm -hmm. and then there are voices saying you, but you need to climb it. And they're saying, but I can't, yeah. <laughs> but you need to, yeah. but I can't, but you need to, but I can't. And I think that's, you know, I think the most controversial statement I'll say today is that's where God's grace comes in. Um, now that doesn't excuse us from not starting to climb through our own efforts, but really just praying for um, change in our own hearts, praying for change in our societal hearts. And if we don't want to pray for our own, if we even say, you know what, I don't even want to have that encounter with the other because I'm scared. 
uh, I'm angry. I'm, you know, insert emotion here, uh, or previous wound here. Sometimes we can pray for the willingness to be willing. And that may sound Pollyanna-ish, but I, I, I know that I wouldn't be where I am. I just think prayer is what's really helped so many people that I've seen move forward and I've seen it move me forward. And whatever denomination someone is, is just realizing that there is that the controversial statement I'll say today is that there is a God. We may have different names for that God, but there is a God and he does, he, she, it does want to heal us all in a society and reaching out to that higher power. However, we understand that. Um, can have a dramatic effect on us all and in our society. Well said, Father. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, I you know look at you know I wouldn't say I'm the most religious person, but I definitely believe in higher power. And you know, I, I don't I don't practice in the same you know church as an institution, but I do I, I do believe in in you know in in being a good person and 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 I have a higher faith. And and I think good practice and being a good human is always a, is is always the best start. You know, prayer is always a, is a, is a great thing if it's used in the right way. And I think mm-hmm. um, right, that's a very good point. And, and I think that's that's it. It's like practicing what you preach. A lot of times, you know, you know, I can only speak to be. You know, I said before I was half Puerto Rican and half half African American. And I remember my brother telling me it was a kid. He was like, "No, I'm 100 percent African American and I'm 100 percent Puerto Rican." Mm. And I think there's something about owning who you are, knowing who you are, and being proud of that. And 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 I think there is something beautiful in 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 that. And I know, you know, look, a lot of our history was race, and 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 we're writing it now. We can't go backwards. That's the one thing we can't do. We can learn from our history, and we can only move forward. We need new laws. We need new policies. We can't keep this archaic, you know, system. We have to change that system in the same way that there was a national campaign to lower the speed limit, right? I think mm-hmm. it was 41 to 35, right? Look, it didn't stop people from speeding, but it certainly saved lives. And that five miles per hour makes a huge difference in raising the gun limits from 16 to 18. Oh, what's that going to do? It's not going to, no, nobody mm. said it was going to stop shooting. But it, it, you don't know, you don't know what happens when that 16 year old goes to buy the gun and can't. Mm-hmm. And there's so much power in taking action. And look, as Obama said, it has to happen, not only at the presidential, but it has to happen yes. at the level. It has yeah. to happen with our senators, our mayors, our governors. Yes. It has to happen with our community liaisons. It happen, has to happen with law enforcement. And you use the example of the, of the law enforcement that were willing to take the knee and how powerful that is. I mean, yeah. literally, it almost brought tears to my eyes to say, we're mm-hmm. in 2020 and, and I'm seeing a police officer take a knee. I mean, mm. for me, that is a very powerful image. And, and look, whether yeah. they were doing it for, the, I, it didn't feel like they were doing it for the hashtag. It felt like yeah, mm-hmm. it felt like you know what? We can make a difference. We can change police culture. The same buddy that inspired me to make my feature film. The co- the conversation in the the dinner the dinner table conversation was an actual conversation I had with a police officer. Mm-hmm. And that same police officer was the first person I reached out to on the night of the riots. He was somebody that I was like, I know he's out there on the front lines. I know that he is literally going to be asked to go to police plaza downtown and be part of that line. Mm. And I'm worried about his livelihood. He's got three kids. He's got a wife. 
And I know he's one of the good ones. Mm. It's like, we have to, we have to, we have to move forward and not look backwards. You know, maybe it's asking different questions on the test. And I think that's something that we can do. That's within our power. Change the questionnaire. You yes. know, if it's still getting the same result, we got to figure out, and we have to figure out how to, how to stimulate another portion of our brains for these young children. We can't ask, we can't have the same behavior and expect different results. And I think it's the same. Look, I need to lose weight, right? I'm not going to lose weight by doing the same thing that I'm doing. I have to change my behavior. I have to change. Yes. Look, it's only up to me, right? You teach health, you teach wellness. And look, I, you know, and I have every, yeah, I'm older. I just don't have the motivation. What I have is every excuse in the book. Yep. And yep. I did it for 10 years, you know? So help me, Dr. J, you know, help me. <laughs> Is what I really need is to lose weight so that I can get clarity of thought, you know, and, and look, it's, it's all about, it's all connected, right? Health, fitness, you know, education, all of it's all connected, which is why I made a film about interconnectedness. But yes. I think it's not looking backwards. It's only looking backwards so that we can change the future. Yeah. It's not and if I can go backwards and look for answers. Yeah. And if I could just add like an addendum to what I said before, because I think like a trap that many I know in my faith tradition fall into is that all they do is pray. You know, it's like, oh, we prayed for this at mass and we prayed that people get along and then and then just the same goes forward. And and I, I think it was Mother Teresa who said this, although someone on Snoops.com may correct me as to the true authorship. But it was pray as if everything depends on God, but then act as if everything depends on you. And mm -hmm. I, I love that discipline because I think it, it like forces me to not just say, okay, well, God's got it. Not a, I, I'm just going to sit home and, you know, from a diet standpoint, eat my Cheetos, you know, <laughs> um, but, you know or whatever that is, you yeah. know, and I think it, that's, that's so much of what we need to do. And I think it's just kind of going out there and um, finding diverse communities in which we can have the conversations and in which and in some ways it's maybe also maybe safe to make the mistakes that we need to make in order to move forward you know and that yeah. that definitely means me you know mistakes is how we learn and we're all learning right. as a community as a society and as individuals and i love what both of you are saying i love ray that you're emphasizing yes you individually can make a difference so don't give up on that idea. And especially if you're part of a dominant culture right now, that if you know that you've been conferred some sort of privilege, whether it's your race or education or income level, or the fact that you're male, a cisgender, you know, all of these things give you the voice, a stronger voice in some ways, at least in the beginning of the discussion, that's going to change the systemic injustice. Because like it or not, until the dominant groups get on board, it's much harder to get a larger movement to happen quicker. But that starts at the individual level. So you can all take this up. Don't be afraid of the discomfort. And to that point, I want to talk about the supercharged secret of fighting injustice. As I open this conversation with this, we all need to do it. It's our responsibility that we make the most of our brief blip of time that each of us have on this earth to try to do the things that we can to leave this world a better place than the one that we came into. And I came up with five ideas and I would just love for each of you to weigh in because I really like to let my 
listeners know that they can be empowered for a positive change anytime. They can literally listen to this podcast and go out and do something today. And that's what I want to empower people to do. So the first tip I have is educate yourself on systemic racism and anti-racism resources. Just understand what that is. I I think there's a lot of well-intentioned people who don't want to go there because it is uncomfortable. But you know, because of the internet, we have so many amazing resources now. You can look at the videos at Race Forward. It's a website. And these videos are great. They're only a minute and a half each and really tell you a lot about systemic racism and what it is. You can take the implicit association test that I mentioned earlier. And the website is implicit.harvard.edu. Find out what your intersectionality score is. That's the measure of the level of systematic oppression and discrimination you face as an individual. It's a great conversation starter. But just arm yourself with as much knowledge as possible so that you can understand at a deeper level of why this injustice happens and what you can do about it. Ray and Father Tom, do you have anything to add to how to educate yourself? What have you told people? Maybe your kids, Ray, have you talked to your children about these issues? What do you tell people when they say, I want to know more and I don't understand? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I try to be very upfront and honest. I mean, my kid and I have, an, I have a six-year-old, and we went on a bike ride yesterday in Venice, and um, it, actually, we we broke curfew uh, <laughs> to see if I was going to get arrested with my my son, with your little kid, you know, riding and you know doing nothing. So I just you know was testing the waters a little bit, <laughs> but everything was boarded up. And but it, 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 you know, as Obama said, I think I have a sense of optimism right now about what's happening. And again, I'm not talking about the, the the looting or the rioting, although I understand that to a certain degree. You know, again, I don't condone it, but I understand it's hard for people to understand the literal translation between stealing a pair of Adidas and that. I try to tell people it's not about the Adidas, right? They don't they don't actually care about that. They care about making as much noise as possible because they felt they feel unheard. Yes. And sometimes that means throwing a brick for them because when Colin Kaepernick takes a knee it feels like it goes unnoticed mm. when, when yeah. sometimes when it's, it's deemed a peaceful protest feels like it has gotten them nowhere. Then they mm. resort to anything else that is the exact opposite of that. And again, it's not something to be condoned. And you'll ask any, any leader of any organization and any protest, they say, we don't stand for that. That's not what we're preaching. It's not what we're talking about. But anyway, I think, yes, I, I do expose my, my children to it because they're, they're going to be exposed to it one way or the other. Um, so I try not to sugarcoat it. Yes, I try to talk to them in daddy talk <laughs> and make yep. it tangible for a kid to know, you know, look, not all police officers are bad. This police officer did something that was wrong and, and, and you know, may pay the price for it. And, and however, we can have that conversation as young as, the, as young as they can, because, yeah, my son will have a, a textbook and he's going to see people that look like him and he, or he's not. You know, and, and I have to, as a parent, have to be the one to try to educate. Absolutely. And I think the second tip is really something that Father Tom, you said, which is listen to the listener. Um, so many of us are making noise and some of it feels disingenuous. You're using the hashtag, but do you really even know what it means? Have you even mm -hmm. done the self-education? Um, have you sat and listened and just sat in that discomfort and just just took a deep breath and said, okay, I accept that this is your experience and your opinion. So Father Tom, explain what you mean by listen to the listener and how it might help us in this movement. Well, I think, you know, kind of going back to like the social media conversation we've been having and even just something you just said, Judy, like there is so much good content out there, you know, and so many great resources. 
But if we're being honest, there are a lot of bad resources too, <laughs> you know? And I, I mean, that's one of the, the great things and one of the horrible things about the internet is it's like the great equalizer, you know? Every well-intentioned person and every bad-intentioned person has a platform, you know? And it can be hard to discern which voices should I be listening to? Because I think there are people who are offering very important voices that might come from a more politically right perspective. Of course, we need to listen to those, you know, speaking politics. We might, there's people on the left that we need to listen to. Um, and I think it's, and there's just a lot of people who just love to scream. Um, I've got loads of opinions I would love to share with the universe. <laughs> and uh, maybe they're not always the opinions that are going to move the conversation forward. And I just, the, the people and the voices who have helped me move forward are the people who are trying to listen to a wide variety of voices. And I think those, those are the voices we can listen to. And I'll just, you know, put the plug in for Monsters and Men again. One of the reasons I just love the film so much is because it really just tried to get into the gray. It just didn't go back into everyone's separate corners. And I think the more we can highlight those who are listening to, who are reading different perspectives and who are, who have their own opinions, because we all do, and that's great, but who are really trying to uh, appropriate different perspectives, um, different life experiences into the mix. I think that's what's really going to bring us all forward. Agreed. And tip three is to self-reflect for real. So again, I think mm. all of these are connected, but are you really self-reflecting or are you just kind of doing it? You're meditating in the park so everybody can see you meditate, right? I mean, no. True self-reflection is not a walk in the park. It hurts. It hurts really bad. To it's be a pain. Confronted. It's an awful, <laughs> it's an awful experience. It is like a very terrible experience if you're doing it in a genuine way, because it's difficult to be confronted with the not so pretty parts of yourself. But guess what? We're all broken, flawed. And until we come face to face with it, it's going to be very hard for us to evolve and actually be better. But I also want to say that shame is not usually a useful emotion because sometimes shame makes people just isolate more and then not speak up. So don't be ashamed at your flaws. Just you know, acknowledge and accept it because all of us have flaws and use that discomfort as fuel for your change. And this also goes right into the next tip, which I would love for you guys to talk about, because I think this is important. When people say, I can't make a difference, this mountain is too big, there's no way I can do anything. But you can, even when you speak up at the micro level, changing discriminatory and racist attitudes starts with one person. It's that whole thing where people laugh off the colleague or uncle who makes a racist joke. Mm. Don't let your friend get away with doing that or using a racially coded word. You know, call them out on it. Yeah. Let them know what they said hurts you. And I find that it's been helpful for me when I have those conversations that I direct it to my experience. I'll say, yeah. you know what? That I didn't like that. That hurt me. I feel uncomfortable that you made that joke in, in class today. That's where I think maybe they can listen because again, I'm using I words um, as opposed to you're racist, but it's more, <laughs> that made me extremely uncomfortable. I, I don't know why you said that, but it's not okay for you to say that. And I think what, what you're saying, it really, you know, it's, it's, it's that idea that, you know, we are at the end of the day, and this is what our Catholic, this is, you know, speaking as a Catholic priest, the Catholic, you know, faith teaches is that we are good people at the end of the day. But uh, we can, we are good people, but we do bad things. 
You know, mm-hmm. I like to think of myself as a, you know, I'm supposed to be a professionally good person and I do bad things, you know, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. and, and that's, and it's, it's kind of separate. And I think that's where that shame and guilt, that separation between shame and guilt, there are some things I'm genuinely guilty of. There are some things I've done, um, whether it's on the, the racial front or just a, a, a whole host of other areas of my life that I have not done good things. And there's a difference between that and who we are as a person. Yeah, it's never too late to change either. You know, I think that's, you know, that's one thing, you know, look, I, yeah, I grew up in New York City public school, wasn't the best education, you know, I was told by my guidance counselor, I should maybe think about taking the ACT, not the SAT, because I wasn't good enough. I didn't get into film school on my first try. There's so many, you know, hiccups that we have along the way. And, you know, and, and, and it takes sometimes it just takes mentors or people in your life to, to, to be that spark at some, some point. There's a lot of young, young people out there that need guidance and are looking for that guidance. And, you know, oftentimes we get it from their friends um, because those are the people that feel like the closest to them. If they, you know, if their parents are working and they don't have that support system in place. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as, as, is try to reach out to people around you that, that might need you, you know, and, and be resources for them, check in on them, you know, yeah, and check in on them genuinely, not only when there's a problem. It's like, I've been getting a lot of text messages this week. Ray, are you okay? Mm. Is your family okay? And like, I, I appreciate it. I, I do, I do appreciate the messages. I think they are well-intended. But it, it also is a little weird, you know? Right, because you're like, I haven't heard from you in months. <laughs> it's a little strange. Yeah, you know, and I, and I can't be that person. I can't be closed-minded. And so, like, why is everybody feeling like they need to reach out and ask me how mm-hmm. I'm totally fine and I'm a big boy and, I, you know, take care of myself. But, but I think there is some people are reaching out. And I, and I, and I, and I want to accept that. I want to accept that, that there's something genuine. And they want to talk about it. They want to engage and they don't, they don't know how. You know, and I think there's just a few things not to do, <laughs> you know, like, again, going back a little bit to the tone depth, there's a few, th- you know, I've had friends text me pictures of them mm-hmm. reading black literature. Mm. Like, I, I, I'm so happy that they're reading literature. I don't need them to sh- like show it to you. Yeah. You know, yeah. A, little, a little bit. It's like, yeah. It's like a little bit of the, the you know, not to, to, to say anything negative about Trump, but I, I think there's a little bit of. The using the book in, in, in a way that feels disingenuous. Yeah. Going in front of a church and just holding the book and, and not practicing. After tear gassing press protesters in order to have that. Book. Yeah. And I think there's that, right? <laughs> you said something very profound before, and, I, and I, I'm going to take that after this call, which is, you know, it's one thing to go to church on Sunday, but it was what we were doing the other six days. So to my friends that want to help, helping is, is listening. That's number one, right? Helping is listening and understanding and trying to understand. It's not talking all the time. Sometimes it's just hearing what the other side is saying. And then it's, is this my turn to speak sometimes? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is their turn. Sometimes it's okay to let people go out there and express themselves. And now is not the time for me to do it. When things quiet down, then I can speak. Then it's my turn. And kind of knowing when it's your turn a little bit. And I think there's, and look, and that goes the same for me. It's knowing when it's my turn to say something sometimes yep. is a little bit of like, it's, it takes practice, right? It takes practice of knowing when to engage, how to engage, and then having something meaningful to engage with, Yes, you know? And, and I think that's just, look, it takes practice. It takes 
It takes courage. And I, and I encourage my friends that want to do something to speak up when it's not convenient to speak yes. up. When, when the, all the noise of the riots go down or, or the protests go down, great. That's when I want to hear from you. Right. I want to know that it's not loud enough. I right. want to know that you know, you're there for me in that in-between time, in the six days that we're not going to church on Sunday, because that's the church. That's the, to me, that's the real practice of what you're taking from the scripture. And I think it's, it's, it's that time in between that we just need to collapse, you know, and need to be a little bit more infuse more into our daily lives, right. In the same way of brushing your teeth in the same way of doing certain things, eat three meals a day or whatever you've been taught those principles, right. It's infusing some of these practices of just in good times, human nature, people all the time, not just like, are you okay when a black man dies? Cause black women are dying all the time. Right. This one right. just got caught on camera. Nobody's asking all the time. Like, did it, like this, this happened all the time. But there was hundreds of black men that died today that no one's going to know about, hear about. That's right. Getting arrested through some other injustice that has not been video videotaped. You know. Right. So I think it's like we have to just make it an everyday thing. This is not one day a month, or you guys get a month, or you know, Asian Pacific. Day, yeah, yeah, like, what? <laughs> right, yes. We're like, oh, thank you. Like, let me just try to get all yep. my problems together today. Yeah, <laughs> and all yep. the speakers that I yep. can to figure it out. Like, yes, that's right. And it, it's, it's a good point. It's a really good point. And I, I too sometimes get those texts during Asian Pacific Islander Awareness Month. It's like, oh, look at what I'm reading today. I'm like, good for you. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I know, I know it's well intentioned, and I'm not trying to be dismissive. But yes. it is funny because the whole idea, and I think it's an important idea to end on, is that it's not over. You know, there's going to be more George Floyd's. That's not the point. It's not, okay, we're doing this protest for a week and then, okay, what? No, change happens from conscious choice every single day of your life. And to that point, my last tip is make a conscious effort to know people different from you. Do something out of your comfort zone. We're having this conversation. All three of us have different backgrounds, different ways that we grew up, different traumas that we may or may not have experienced. And as soon as we open the door to having different perspectives, we grow, we evolve, and racism and racist acts do decrease. And you can look and laugh at those protesters, but unless you've actually been to a protest yourself, you don't get to do that. So expose yourself to a protest if that feels right for you. Vote, volunteer, donate, do whatever you can do to actually expose yourself to something different. Because I think it is important to expose yourself to things that are different from your usual day-to-day. So we can't just settle back into a normal after these protests die down, right? Because- Yeah, I think you're you're exactly right. I, I'll, I'll just add my one thing. I think I think a lot of it, it, it only is received negatively when it feels like pity, because I don't think that's yeah. what anybody's asking. Mm. Nobody's asking for pity. Nobody's asking for you to feel sorry for me. And nobody's asking you to buy me off, sort of, you know, nobody's asking for that kind of, I think they're asking for justice, right? And I think yeah. if, if you can be a part of that, it's then, then you move beyond, I'm feeling sorry for you. It's like, that feels like guilt. <laughs> Yes. That feels like, even if it's not, it feels like it. It's like, you don't have anything to be sorry for. What do you have to be sorry for? You know, so I think that's it. It's like, we want justice. Yes. Peace. <laughs> you know, that, yes. that's the, that's what we're asked after. I think that's what the protesters are after. Yeah. It's not pity. 
And I think it's doing away with those feelings, those emotions, because those are personal. Yeah. Those are me, not you. You know, and I think if we can move away from ourselves a little bit and lend that givingness to others, I think we'll be able to to really help each other out. Really well said. Father Tom, any last words? You know, let's just let us all pray that that we are open to the inspiration to creating the world that we want to live in. It's so important for us just to know that there is hope. And I do think that this movement is different. Things are changing already. All four men who were involved in George Floyd's murder look like they're all charged. Mm -hmm. And there is policy changes underway as we speak. So let's just not forget that we have to do something every day to keep moving forward and really make this different so that we're not doing the same thing over and over again. Let's really try to make a difference individually every day and take that responsibility. Ray and Father Tom, it's been amazing to talk to you both and learn from you. Where can people find you if they want to learn more? Ray, what's what's your social handle? What's your hashtag? <laughs> I'm completely off social media. I don't. <laughs> I have no social media president presence. It's not a knock on social media. I, I hope that people. I hope that my work will speak for itself, and people will go out and support my films, and obviously always come back on the show or do a podcast or engage in in, in real meaningful conversations. So I'm I'm here anytime for you, and, and grateful that you have me on the show. Amazing, Ray. So check out all of Ray's films and projects, and you can have his email address. We will include that in the links below. And uh, Father Tom, you do have social media. <laughs> yes, I have some social media. Yes, uh, I'm on uh, Facebook right now. I need to. Well, uh, as, as Dr. Judy pointed out, that I have a following on Instagram, which I had no idea about. But Dr. Judy, what's my what's my Instagram? Oh my handle? gosh. all right that's okay that should not be your highest priority father it's okay Um, and and for everybody thanks for sticking with us and listening to this episode of supercharged life i really hope that it gave you some feel and some hope that change is possible if you like the show and want to learn more follow me at dr judy ho on social media and be sure to subscribe download listen and tell your friends about this podcast i'm dr judy now go supercharge your life